Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Dear Dabbler, what a treat I have for you today. I'm joined by AJ Pierce, one of the most glorious women I've ever met. And no, I am not exaggerating. We were on a writing course together a few years ago in beautiful North Wales, where she was working hard on what would be her debut novel, Dear Mrs Bird. Set in wartime London, the novel follows Emmeline Lake, an aspiring war journalist who navigates the challenges of career, friendship, family and the Blitz with a real sleeves rolled up and best foot forward spirit. The book was a Richard and Judy book club pick and was shortlisted for debut of the year at the 2019 British Book Awards. Her second book picks up where dear Mrs Bird left off. Yours Cheerfully is out this week and I'm delighted to have AJ with me on the Dabblers Book Club to chat all about it. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? I'm really, really well. Really, oh, it's so nice to see it's you. So nice to see you too. I've been so looking forward to this. Um, how has everything been? It's, it's a funny old time at the moment, but um relieved to have somehow managed to do a second book because um, <laughs> that difficult second book it was kind of oh blimey it seems like a million years since the first lockdown I went back into London for the first time in a year and a half last week how was that <sighs> brilliant <laughs> it was it's the longest time I haven't been in in London for about 35 years I think wow. and it was weird I got a cab from Waterloo and as we crossed the river I and went sort of towards Senate House. I it was oddly emotional. It was actually quite sort of, hello London. They haven't got you, have they? It yeah. was she's still standing kind of thing. And and yeah, it was it was so lovely to be to be back. Yeah, London. Just stepping out in London for me just feel like the, I love that it's a city where you could be as lonely as anything. But actually just stepping out and looking around that always feels magical but yeah it's all be anyway I want to hear all about the book and the writing and just yeah dear Mrs Bird was super successful and obviously we met while you were writing that and it was yeah a bit more than a glint in your eye but um a very definite project Um, that was a mad week wasn't it (laughs) that was 
It was such a lovely week. So I've done my intro to you already. I've recorded it and I've, I've introduced Brilliant. you as like one of the most glorious women I've ever met because you are just so positive and so... Oh, nice. Yeah, no, I thought, and it's funny when you meet people for like a week and then literally I've told everyone, every time I even see your book or see, see someone, I know her and she's just so lovely. And it comes Aww. through in your writing as well, like that... Um, in my intro I've said it's like the sleeves rolled up and best foot forward and you know and just which is obviously the characters within uh, within yes. Mrs Bird and yours cheerfully um, yeah I spend a lot of time sitting here moping being <laughs> being grumpy and watching sewing bee but um, people don't want to don't want to read books about that I must say it's quite pleasing to know okay so even even AJ mopes um, because... oh god yeah I mean I'm a misery guts and really quite horrible in real life I <laughs> I live on my own, so um, it's easy to be. If I live with people, I'm I'm, I'm really horrible. Um, <laughs> sometimes when I try and blag a book that's a dark gothic something, um, the authors will go, "Blimey, AJ, I hope you're going to like this." And and or if it's got loads of sex in, they're like, "Oh, I hope you'll be all right with it." <laughs> Emmy and Bunty are made up. I'm a really <laughs> horrible mopey person. <laughs> Maybe it was just me that week. Maybe you're actually a really miserable person all the time and I just thought she's just this sunlight in the room. I think it depends who you're with. Yeah. When you when you get to go away for a week and you're with people like, you know, there's on this course and it's Julian Rowan running it. Fantastic, and aren't they? you meet people like you and people are really different and you don't have to worry about work or any of the other stuff. Yeah. Then you kind of just get so you're freed up to just have a have an absolute lark yeah. and live your best life I think yeah it was um, such a wonderful so week it was a wonderful week so you came to writing but you sort of just fancied trying it out you went to it did a few courses and um and it was yeah. when I met you that was when you was kind of taken up a gear I think yeah I'd been really lucky to get mentored by Julie mm. and that was a total game changer and um she just saved me about two years in going down in the wrong direction with writing and also just just you know just how good she is she teaches she teaches you things like okay what's your book about yeah and you go well it's about a woman who gets a job no what's it really about mm. and I can remember on another course sitting there open mouth looking at her going uh what do you mean what's it about and she's like it's about friendship mm. you're I'm like oh Oh, you know, real sort of, okay, that's not what I thought. And so she was massively instrumental in in moving up a gear. But I think it's that thing, isn't it, that there are some things, writing's a weird hobby, isn't it, that you can kind of, it starts out as something fun and then suddenly you're expecting, well, expecting loosely, that somebody might give you money for it. I mean, no one gives me money for doing jigsaws or sewing. <laughs> they should. Or that would be... <laughs> they damn should. <laughs> jigsaw champ. There must be jigsaw championships. Uh, for listeners, we're talking about Julie Cohen, who um, is a, a very prolific writer and a former English teacher, and she really demystifies writing. I think. Yeah. It's been quite a whirlwind, right? The last few years, I imagine, because you go through this dream of being a writer, and then I've, I've seen so your posts on Instagram and everything, and when you were able to to do the book tours and everything just that you must have so many pinch me moments of like this is what like I was after being in a room with people listening to me talk about my book and the signing afterwards how's that felt totally it's been that's one of my favorite bits actually and 
meeting people is has been lovely that's that's the best bit that you get to chat to people and I and I am missing that obviously because of the current sort of situation but I've loved that and that's been that it's a whole series of pinch me moments I think it's a real sort of blimey I'm talking to well anyone but some of the sort of some of the things I've I've been doing or, or you know doing this is kind of a peculiar thing because it's still weird that people want to know about the writing process or the books or whatever so it's I'm sort of making the most of it really because you never know how long it's going to last you know don't don't get too full of yourself this so enjoy as every single moment and so last week I hadn't been in London for like a year and a half and then um, I got the opportunity to be on open book and so I was just right I'm going into London they were very kindly said you can do it on zoom but I just thought this is just amazing this will probably never happen again and so I'm getting to go to broadcast house and broadcasting house see I don't even know the right names (laughs) hopeless amateur um it really is kind of just yeah let's grab this and try and and enjoy it and try to just remember every single little bit of it um and obviously that's you know it's not Pollyanna then that that's sort of at the same time there's the writing bit which you know two years of bashing your head against a desk wailing and wondering if you're ever going to be able to (laughs) did you have a a routine to it I mean I imagine the first one wasn't as routined but I'm guessing your second book you sort of tried to stick to a, a schedule I did I tried to I mean I'm sitting here in what is supposed to be the grandly titled writing room which is a tiny box room that um has become a storeroom as well and I'm surrounded by by photos of people in the 1940s and uh, photocopied things from books and magazines from the time and I just sort of did this immersion thing trying to find the right story and all and a story that would be good enough because I was quite sort of before I even got into a routine for for writing the second book I was sort of sitting there thinking crikey I've been so lucky with the first one. This second one, ha- mm-hmm. I can't muck about. I, I've, I think the, the driving force was, I don't want anyone to think I've just thought, ah, I'll do a sequel and it'll be all right kind of thing. I mean, least of all Picador, who are just so lovely and supportive as a publisher, but also the readers, because people have been so lovely. And I just thought, well just do your best on the second one and then of course as soon as you start thinking about all the expectations you you find yourself sitting there in front of a blank screen with (laughs) being absolutely traumatized and going oh my gosh I don't know what to do um so once I got in once I found the 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 idea for the main theme and plot of the book um then I got into a routine and I tend to muck about all morning um and (laughs) waste time on social media and go to Tesco and that sort of stuff and then I kind of and and find excuses not to start and then I get going about two o'clock or three o'clock in the afternoon and depending on how close I am to the deadline just keep going and um and I did get quite close to some of the deadlines 
and and just worked into the night which yeah I quite like doing actually I love being when you're really just immersed in it it take for me it takes so long to to sort of switch over to that point where you're like nothing else matters I, I haven't done it for so so long and I can't do routines I sort of manage about two weeks of a routine um and then then that's it but yes um how much research did you do? So it's, the first thing that triggered it was finding a 1939 or buying 1939 British Woman's Weekly magazine. And so that sort of sparked, sparked it yes, off. Yes, that was the big spark. And, and then this is my, I know uh, listeners can't hear this, but all of wow. that, uh, those are all books. That's all, those are all the sort of magazines and see how, oh, sorry how messy it is. But I have a, a few hundred magazines that I've bought over the last few years. And I, I do literally sit there and, and read and read and read. And the problem pages are great because they're mm. full of little stories. Each, each letter is a story in itself. Um, but I got, I thought of a couple of different ideas for the second book. Um, and the really odd thing was I started writing one idea that I thought was, was pretty decent. And, and um, my agent and editor um, liked the idea. And as I was writing it, I thought it wasn't so much me deciding it wasn't the right idea. Mm. It was the characters. As I was writing it, Emmy just was, it. it wasn't yeah. gripping her as it should do. Really weird. It's really sort of odd that you think you're in charge and then you've created a fictional character who actually takes over. It's so funny when you get to that point, isn't it? Because you hear people talking about, oh, the character did this and you're like, oh, come off it. And then actually when you're yeah. doing it, you're like, nope, they're not <laughs> this... Um amazing no it's weird you literally creating monsters yeah. um that they're all these characters who just you you realize that whilst they're in your head as you're writing it you're you're thinking that no they're just not going to care enough about this yeah. um and then absolutely by chance i i met um i was chatting to some people after doing a talk and and this is why um not being able to go out and chat to people is is a real shame at the moment because you you learn so much because you get to chat to people after events and things and um, particularly older people who remember the war. There is absolutely nothing as interesting and exciting as chatting to someone who is telling you an anecdote um, from 1941. Um, it might be an anecdote that they don't even think is particularly interesting or important but it's this it's gold dust it's insight that you just it's insight you don't get in books and it's um unique because it's not a film or a documentary or any form of source that you might get through archives or museums and so um I met a a, a a wonderful lady who just happened to say, oh, one of my earliest memories from the war was when I was about four and I went to the factory where my mother worked. And and she described the, the, the factory for a little bit and, and I, I said, you were four in a factory? That What kind of thing? And um, she went on to explain that at that point, if you didn't have childcare on occasion, your mum might have to take you in. Um, and so that that was one of those moments where I just thought, oh, wow, I need to know more about this. And and we chatted on a bit more. And and uh, and um, Joan said, you know, her mum was a lifelong supporter of trade unions following her experiences in the war. And so I started looking into it and researching um, through reference books and also lots of um, 
papers, picture posts for sort of news magazines are really good. Um, and um, it turned out that, yes, that the childcare was a real issue and that the government had this massive drive to get women into the factories, but wasn't really set up. They started setting up government nurseries, but I think in 1941 there were about 17 nationally and it did grow and grow and and some trade unions in fact a lot didn't allow women in that in at that point they changed some of them changed and did let them join throughout the war but the more I read the more I found all these appalling examples of inequality um women didn't even get equal reparation um if they were injured in an air raid the men got more money just for being male it's yeah and it's always never thinking about the impact on women like oh we're women in the workplace okay fine like um we yeah childcare we're just gonna sort this out ourselves yeah that's we? okay there's no an older lady next door will look after your children we saw it this year as well i, I still think there are fun some fundamentals that um have not changed enough <laughs> i know um, really there's a long why is there such a long way way to go it's just like come on mm. for goodness sake it's just why are we st- as you know the cliche why are we still talking about this yeah um why do we have to keep talking about this well speaking of still talking about it wartime novels and everything to do with world war Two, we still can't get enough of it why why do you think that is like we, we're not we're not gonna I, uh, speak to friends from different nationalities and like yeah in england you st- still talk about the war <laughs> why is there such a romance around it um in terms of you know the lives of ordinary people at that time why do you think we're still fascinated by, by that's such a good question well my generation what with me being ancient um <laughs> my parents were we were brought up with it because my parents were children during the war I think my dad was nine and my mum was seven when it it started so they had very clear memories of it. My grandparents, my generation, all our grandparents had, you know, were grown ups then and were looking after kids or were in the services or whatever they were doing. So certainly my generation grew up with it because I was born 18 years after the the war ended, something like that. And so that's, if I look back to around about 2003, that's not very long ago. But I think it's interesting how, um, now in 2021, it is still a reference point, mm. both for the good and for the bad. I mean, I think um, there are certain amounts of, you know, references to Dunkirk spirit and that sort of thing is all very well. But I think occasionally, and I don't want to go all political, but occasionally there's this whole kind of, we won a war and we're marvellous yeah. and look at us now. And, and that I loathe. Mm-hmm. I really loathe that. I, I, I hate that using either of the world wars as a as a sort of a jingoistic, aren't we brilliant and better than everyone else? I just think is hideous. And I think that the glamorizing it as well is is a really dodgy area. Um sometimes people do say to me, Do you wish you'd been alive then? Because you know the, the books are quite jaunty and there's fun and stuff. And I just say, absolutely not. I'm really grateful that I got to be born when it, in in Britain at least there was a it, it was a comparatively peaceful time and and so I do I am always really aware that I'm I'm writing what is essentially a piece of entertainment about 
one of the most appalling times in world history. I mean, I think what comes across, though, is there's no hint of glamorizing at all of the war it, it really is about especially through your characters it's really about personal struggles through external conflict as we would have learned on our uh, um, on our writing course you know it's the internal yep. and the external conflict and, and how one sort of impacts yeah. the other um and I think that really comes across I what I I wonder if it's it's the last time as a country that we've struggled through anything collectively. And I wonder whether that's people are still, we don't have as many modern examples. I mean, even the pandemic is not quite on, it's not really on a par. And there's a quite a fascination with people suddenly changing their lives completely with this undercurrent of fear, um, but really getting through it. And I think that's quite, that is probably the the, the British spirit, I would say, which is um, not even stiff upper lip. It's like, we'll worry, we'll think about this afterwards. <laughs> you know, there's work to be done kind of thing, which I think really comes across. And I, I, I quite, I, maybe it's a working class woman thing, especially. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Um, the ordinary lives of people who got on with it. Mm. Um, you know, people like uh, you know, my, my grandmother very much has this attitude towards you. Just get on with it while you're sitting there, you know, feeling sorry for yourself. And yes, when there's um, and I think I, I, I love, you know, the, the tone that your your books capture. Um, oh, thank you. It's a weird. It's a weird one, though, isn't it? Because this whole we're in it together thing is that it's easy to look back on the war and and say oh everyone was pulling their weight together but there was still the have and the have nots I mean there was there were still people having a no one was having and I'm speaking about Britain here rather than anywhere else but you know there were some people had an easier time than others and that's always that's always the 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 point isn't it that no matter how bad things get there there are people who have a far worse time but I do think perhaps and I'm just a punter with an opinion I, I, I don't have anything to back this up but I do think it's quite a British thing that when things are horrible we are forced together yeah. and we are quite good at you know we don't nobody talks well in certainly in London but n- not in other places but you know people don't speak to each other on the tube unless something awful is happening Mm. at at, at that point something threatening and um I think funnily enough I a few years ago someone said to me that um Britain is one of those countries that running marathons and that sort of thing is the, the the fundraising aspect of that is not that doesn't happen everywhere that's something that it happens in in some countries and Britain is one of the ones where um fundraising through tough mothers and all those sorts of weird stuff and is quite a a thing and I think that's quite interesting that we kind of our humor can be quite uh dry and you know I think it's quite a thing that you know 
you you show you like someone by punching them as a kid you know <laughs> so maybe that was just me you know it's kind of you now there's a lot of bff but when i was yeah. growing up there was a kind of like yeah you're all right meaning i love you more than anything in the whole world yes yeah i mean even with my siblings we don't even you know we'd never sort of say I love you or anything <laughs> like oh, gosh, when, my, no. when I got married my sister sent me I, I wrote my sister a really nice card and and she wrote one too sort of two months later back to me and at the end she'd said all these nice things and at the end she goes now let us never speak of this again <laughs> it's like we don't yes let's not let's not go on let's you know, <laughs> but it is that thing I, I my brother um shows affection by volunteering to wash a car um you know, that sort of, that's a practical thing he can do that he does better than anybody else. Um, and that shows that, you know, he's thinking about you. Um, so I've got your lovely book and you, I unfortunately didn't manage to get the Waterstone special edition, which has the beautiful sprayed edges. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so, so pretty. It's sort of a dusky pink and it's really, um, I love the paper as well, the feel of it. It just... Feels like a lovely, precious book. I've, I've only just started it. I'm at the point where I think I know who she's going to run into at a at a new place. So I hope I think Ooh. I haven't even I haven't read the um, the blurb or anything. So it, it probably says it, but I thought I'm going to be surprised. Um, but the first book, uh, Dear Mrs. Bird, I remember when I read it. I was in Paris and I had um, the first paragraph I literally showed it to everyone as a sign of how you set the tone and character so quickly and so clearly um, and it was just the most marvellous thing I think I read it about 20 times um, literally in my creative writing course <laughs> like the first thing I said was everyone read this <laughs> how Love lovely is it um, and then my I, I bought my grandmother a copy and it was really not I think you said one of the things that you've enjoyed is seeing how the generations have been speaking about it yeah. as well because me and my grandma both um both absolutely loved it. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, it's a really joyous novel. Um, even though there's, you know, difficulties. Um, oh, thank you. And everything, you know, obviously characters have to go through challenges. Um, but it just leaves you feeling happy, which is so lovely. Like, it's just nice to finish a book and go, oh, that was a lovely experience, um, rather than everything being doom and gloom. And there were, you know, very definite emotional sort of moments in it as well. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's... um. I find if it was down to me, I would just have them all going out on works outings and with picnics and everything would be lovely and nothing bad would ever happen to them. I hate that. I remember with Dear Mrs. Bird, um, I got to a bit, the really, there's a really, really awful tragic bit. Mm. And as, and but the chapter before, spoilers, it is a really joyous bit. And I remember writing that, I was as away with some friends all writing. And as I wrote the joyous bit, I re- there were tears pouring down my face because the character I was writing about had no idea what was about to happen. Mm. And I knew what I was going to have to do to them afterwards. And I just, I don't think I wrote anything for about three months after that because wow. I knew the next bit was going to be really tough. And, and, and in fact, the chapter before a really tough chapter started out <laughs> being about 10,000 words long because I didn't want to get to the bit where I would start breaking hearts. So I had I had Emmy going to the toilet, pl- mucking about with her hair, talking to random people at work, none of which was relevant. I, I put the characters through the mill. That's a Julie Cohen thing mm-hmm. um, because when she was um, mentoring me and that was just the, the best thing ever, I was super lucky about that. 
she sort of just says, right, you throw stuff at characters and just when you think that they can't take any more, throw something else at them. And I, that is torturous, but I think it's a, it's a really great bit of advice. Mm-hmm. So I kind of, I want to give them challenges and I don't want people to sit there and go, ah, it'll be all right in the end because AJ's books are all right in the end. I hope they're gripped enough to, to want to carry on reading. But I personally, I want to read books that aren't going I do read very serious books occasionally, but every now and then I just think let's have something that will just, yes, the characters will go through the mill, but then I, I can feel safe that they're go- that it's going to be all right in the end. And authors like um, Katie Ford and um, Joe Thomas, Jill Mansell, all of those, I, I, that whole genre, uh, people say contemporary women's fiction or whatever I I hate putting names on stuff but that is so such a brilliant genre of writing which in my view doesn't get enough credit either because to pick up a book by someone and know there will be a happy ending but still want to read 400 pages to get there that's clever to write that absolutely and it's not fluffy and there's character development and it's not like everything's all right in the end because nothing bad actually happened you know it was all a dream and also fluffy if something is fluffy that's not easy to write either (laughs) well i mean fluffy is is there's no substance to it it's like these are books with substance with characters um with the external conflict with everything julie cohen (laughs) says should be in there but it's nice to get to the end and Oh, God, you know what? It's nice to get to the end of the book and not be completely puzzled and go, what on earth was this author trying to get me to read or feel? Or you know, <laughs> It's called Yours Cheerfully. How do you stay cheerful? Cake. Um, Cake. <laughs> Cake. And Cake, oh. <laughs> yes, eating food that's bad for me makes me cheerful. Um, how do you stay cheerful? Cheerful's a funny old word, isn't it? Because it does sound... It's lovely. It can be a bit annoying. Um, You know, someone who's cheerful about everything, I think, you know, you don't want to become Pollyanna. But uh, it's called Yours Cheerfully because that's um, what the the new Agony Aunt column is called in in, Woman's Friend where, where Emmy works. And they decide to call it that because Mrs Bird leaves at the end of the, or in between the first book and the second book. And the... Uh, Mr Collins who is one of my favourite characters um, anyone who read Dear Mrs Bird will be familiar with Mr Collins he is now finally editor um, which he never thought he would be and that, and he's quite a modern sort of chap and gives Emmy another chance to really kick off her journalistic career and so she is she is now working hard on on yours cheerfully but also going off and and writing features and the plot essentially is is based on the ministry of information asks editors from women's magazines to come along to a meeting um and they they did in the war the ministries did use uh, the women's press you know if they if they needed them to encourage their readers to to cook with carrots then they'd say right do stuff on carrots yeah. And so when Emmy and Mr. Collins go along to the ministry and they are asked to be part of the, the, the drive to get women into war work, Emmy is completely excited and thinking, right now I have got an official part to play. Um, mm-hmm. And then, of course, she ends up being torn between her loyalty to um, 
the the government and what they are asking people to do and her loyalty to their to her readers who um she's learnt are the most important thing to her so which is a very universal conflict isn't it i suppose with um if you're in any sort of press work yes um, when we're in a pr world these days yeah i think the women's magazines in in the war had quite a a difficult path to take because they had to do their job and keeping people um you know offering escapism and a little bit of of entertainment um giving it being informative and giving them information on on how to make things last and and whether it's clothes or food or whatever trying to answer their problems in print and also by by writing back to them but not being able to go too far into some of the really serious issues that might look unpatriotic or look as if we were giving up so um it's there's tons of interesting stuff and the more the more magazines I read the more I saw that there were pieces of editorial which were gave quite an opinion on what was happening in women's lives and and saying things like we've had lots of letters saying um uh we have our readers are signing up to do to do war work but it's months later and they haven't heard anything back about a placement so come on government get on with it Something's never change, eh? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is the second in the Emmeline Lake Chronicles. I imagine there's going to be a few more then, at, at least one more. I really, really hope so. I'm, I'm planning the next one. I mean, it sort of depends whether people want more of them. Um, you know, touch, very much touch wood. But I'd love to write some more. I'd love to follow um, the main characters through to the end of the war. I, I know what happens to them on a personal level. Um and I know the last scene in the last book, but I don't know how many books I'll 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 be allowed to to write. But there there could be there certainly be one more, and there could be several more. I really hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I hope so. How how do you feel about that end point? Like letting I mean, I imagine at the end of every book, there's a, a sort of sadness of letting a character go for that chapter. Like how do you how do you feel about Emmy and Bunty at the end of? Well, the, as I sit here looking up on my wall, there are photos of them um, on the on the wall. They're kind of I I sort of cast characters through actual pictures um, that I, I, I you can find in junk shops or um, people's albums are for sale on on eBay, you know, house clearances and stuff. And so I tend to look at those and look at real people rather than film stars or actors. Mm-hmm. And so they are. They're sort of like a family in my in my head, really. So I I never have to leave them behind because in my head I know what they've gone off to do. Mm-hmm. So so in, sounds a bit nutty. No, that's such a good tip though, as well. Like such a good writing tip. To um... mine is going around graveyards for name inspiration. That's the only thing I do for name inspiration. But um, but actual images. Yeah, it's really um, as as no one else can see this. I'll show. So this, um, I don't I don't put these on social media or anything because the photos are for are of people who were real people, and and I would hate for somebody to go. Actually, that was my great grandma. But um, uh, so this, for example, this is Bunty and William, 
from oh. the first book and um uh Jets, for for anyone listening this is a photo of of two young people clearly a, a quite a loved up couple actually both in uniform um from the second world war and very much of the era and i i have photos like that because i may not necessarily have the the the, the faces of these people in my head when i'm writing but they because they're real it, it gives a sort of a you feel an almost a responsibility that you're right you try to make the characters as real as possible because the mm-hmm. the the photo that has inspired you is of someone who was at some point a you don't know whether they made it through the war you don't know if they made yeah. it and the fact that a photo has ended up in a house clearance or a, on a sale on eBay it's 80 years later but somebody loved these people enough to keep a photograph for 80 years so that really gives you a sort of a okay I I want to do right by these people and write proper three-dimensional characters I don't know it sounds a bit odd that you kind of you're not just taking these people in vain these are these are people who meant something to somebody and now I'm kind of using a picture of them to to write a, a piece of fiction so I it does help you take it kind of seriously did someone like suggest that to you or did, is that no I just I think I I saw I do a lot of time wasting on on eBay and uh, <laughs> now I get to call it research come on um and um I did gosh I did at one point have a I, I made a little book on one of those true print places, got loads of photos and scanned photos and had a little book I used to keep with me almost obsessively, which had the characters. It had a picture of, of Mrs. Bird and of, of Emmy and Bunty and stuff. And if if I needed inspiration to write, I would just look at it and go, OK, there they are. Those are the people. And I just I'd come across pictures and thought, blimey, that looks like Charles. And it's exciting when you you find them although some people of course would argue that I really should be using my own imagination (laughs) (laughs) I'm really bad at thinking things in my head I can't do it I have to sort of see something quite solid and then take a lot of time to describe it so I do I buy things as well that I think the characters would have owned so this thing which I can't mention actually it's a little notebook that somebody buys Emmy as a present because they know that she wants to be a journalist and things like this become almost like a talisman of of a character and also knowing that that this little notebook is clearly an art deco um piece from the 30s or 40s and i love that i love that well who who has who has owned this whose handbag was this in who who was bought this set it's a it's a little notebook and and a card case a business card case and I, I love that connection and writing historical fiction that is only, you know, 80 odd years ago is great because you can have that. You can have all these artefacts very easily. Yeah. Um, You're going to end up with your writing room being like a museum. Of, like, I know. You have all the books laid out. with. Oh. It's the Miss Havisham School of Writing. <laughs> no. <laughs> we just no. old nutter surrounded by stuff. No, you'll have everything in sort of glass cases and, you know, behind a 
perspex thing that no one can touch. You'd be like, yes, this was the notebook and this is, um, <laughs> yes. these are the photos. This is the bit of old cake. That <laughs> When I first met Jo Unwin, my agent uh, said she thought I would have turned up in full tweed kind of <laughs> Margaret Rutherford look having read the manuscript. I do wonder if I've sort of superimposed the characters from look onto when I met you as well. Because obviously just as just as lovely and but when you say, No, I'm actually not that I'm not that cheerful Horrible. all the time. I'm like, oh but <laughs> just, <laughs> just merge the two characters together. Um it's been so, so lovely to chat to you. Um very quickly, what have, are you doing any other books alongside this series? Have you got any other characters swirling around in your head that you're itching to let out? There are lots that I have some, my family was far more interesting a hundred years ago than we are now. And so there are some, there are some quite interesting people back in the, the, the family that I'm, I'd quite like to write about, but right now I just have to concentrate on mm-hmm. trying to, trying to do this properly, I think. Yeah. So me and Bunty all the way at the moment. Yeah. Um, it's been so lovely to chat to you. Um, Yours Cheerfully is out tomorrow. I think I'm going to be putting out uh, this later today. Thank you so much, AJ, for talking to me about Yours Cheerfully and your lovely Emily Lake Chronicles. I hope you have a fantastic launch this week. And yeah, looking forward to finishing the book and, and seeing what's next in the series. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been really lovely. And I hope I haven't waffled on too much. <laughs> Not at all. 